0: The Brown Girl podcast. This show was created to elevate the voices and perspectives of dual identity South Asians around the world. Here we have conversations on topics and issues that impact our community, as well as share the stories of personal successes and the struggles that often go unsaid. My name is Julie George, and I'm your host. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. Today is episode 22, and we are talking about gun violence and voting reform. I know this is not the usual content, but I hope you guys stick around because I know today's conversation is going to be very educational and insightful and relevant to our times. So I'm thrilled to have our guest today with us, Sean Thomas. A little bit about Sean. Sean grew up in Chicago, Illinois, and attended the University of Illinois-Champaign, majoring in political science and economics. After graduating, he did policy research for U.S. Senator Dick Durbin before getting his master's in international health policy at the London School of Economics. He worked for several years in consulting, received his MBA at Chicago Booth, and is building a telemedicine service that treats psoriasis and eczema. In his spare time, he runs Rank the Vote Illinois, that's at Rank the Vote IL on social platforms, to raise awareness on the need for voting reform. He also plays flag football and ultimate frisbee. And this one made me smile, of course, is an avid listener of the Brown Girl podcast. <laughs> thank you, Sean, for being here today.
1: Yeah, it's great to be on. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Yeah. And thank you for being a loyal listener, too. You know, I never really know who's actually listening. And sometimes it just makes me laugh when people tell me they listen. And I'm thinking they're like the last people on earth who I thought would be listening.
1: No, it's oh. great. I mean, it's, I, I love what you're doing, of creating a platform of, you know, raising the voices of people um, who are less represented, you know, brown yeah. girls and the occasional brown guy. So that <laughs> would be included in that.
0: Yeah. So before we dive into the today's topics, I know I just read your intro, but tell us a little bit, you know, in your own words, like how you got involved on the political front and, and what kind of drove your interest in all of this.
1: Yeah, what drove my interest? I think it started probably at, at a very early age. Um, I had, I had an older sister growing up. And so I understood at a very young age, what it was like to live under tyranny. And I think I just didn't want that for my country. Um, I mean, I, I adore my sister, but I think, um, you know, when you're the youngest sibling, you're, you're very acutely aware of the sense of like, uh, justice and fairness. And so I think that kind of got, that's probably part of it in some way. Uh, I have a niece right now who's the third kid and her like go-to catchphrase is, uh, that's not fair, you know? So there's a long way to go before she has to figure out how to kind of figure that out with her siblings. But yeah, and then growing up, I was watching Peter Jennings' World News Tonight with my parents and kind of got a sense that this world is a lot bigger than just the, the home that I live in or the community that I'm part of. And then I think I fell in love with the West Wing. Um, and so that kind of like dramatized the idea that you could have this like macro level change that can impact a lot of people, um, by, by just these like tweaks on how we incentivize folks on a government level. And so yeah, that, that kind of inspired my passion in politics. And so that's why I got my, I majored in political science and economics and kind of, uh, took it from there.
0: Yeah, wonderful. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, so part of what piqued my interest in uh, having you on the show today was you had shared a video of the uh, Golden State Warriors head coach, Steve Kerr, providing a pretty passionate response in one of the game press conferences. I think it was after a game or before a game, but it was right after the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. And he talked about how a uh, majority of Americans support more gun control measures, but there are senators in our Congress who refuse to put it to a vote because they want to retain power. And we'll talk more about that in a bit and, and have you share why that is. But, you know, since Uvalde and in the last few weeks, there have been several mass shootings in public environments, and now it feels like the sheer frequency is, is so frightening, right? There was that shooting in Highland Park, Illinois. Uh, mm-hmm during the 4th of July, and that was such a, a tragedy, so many lives lost, including um, two young parents who had attended that parade with their two-year-old, and now that two-year-old is an orphan, and it's just so heartbreaking and heart-wrenching and maddening all at the same time, and it's, it's, it's hard not to think about you know, what the possible consequences are of just going outside your home and being in, in large crowds. Um, and it just it happens in our country so often, and all of the data by all accounts does show that gun violence is a lot more prominent in the US than other um developed countries. So let's start off just talking about that and tell us why the US has the highest levels of gun violence compared to other developed and wealthy countries.
1: I think kind of it's almost too simple. I think the explanation for that is. Um, so there was a lot of data that was driven about different countries and the level of access to guns and the prevalence of gun violence. And it's pretty much, uh, it's very correlated. So the, the more guns there are in, in a certain country per capita of people, the more gun violence uh, follows. The one interesting exception is, is Switzerland. Um, so there's still that correlation, but they have high access to guns, um, but there's a fairly low gun violence uh, correlation. And that's because they have very strict uh, licensing measures. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to have a gun, you have to go through, you have to take a class, almost like driver's ed. You have to pass a test, uh, a testing that you can, you know how to uh, safely um, put the gun away. You know how to, to shoot it properly. you uh, can store it properly, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so they find that there's a healthy like gun culture in Switzerland, but it doesn't correlate to the level of mass shootings that we have because they have the regulation in place to make sure that they're actually having psychological evaluations to make sure that the people who have access to the guns are equipped to, to use it. Yeah.
0: yeah. I think, I mean, getting reliable data around like mass shootings and, and gun violence can be kind of difficult because every organization and source has a different way of, you know, interpreting what's considered a mass shooting, et cetera. Um, but there are some pretty objective statistics about the availability of guns that, um, you know, like you mentioned, are very relevant. Like if you've heard people say that there are more guns than people in the, in America, that is a very true statement. Um, in prep for this episode, I, I had found a study in 2017, and it was by the Institute of Geneva, and they had estimated that Roughly, there there are roughly one billion civilian-owned guns in circulation around the world, and the U.S. specifically has four hundred million um, civilian-owned guns, and so that's so wild to think that Americans own forty percent of the world's stockpile of guns, and we know that number has definitely gone up in the last couple of years.
1: And it, it's unfortunate because like the, the uh, availability and accessibility of guns in America doesn't just stay in America. Um, one interesting thing is that there's a still thing, thing called like the Iron River uh, where like cartels in Latin America uh, use, because like Mexico has a very strict, has very strict gun regulation. Mm-hmm. And the way they get access, these the criminals in Mexico and other Latin American countries is that they... Come to America. They buy guns and they ship it to to Mexico. So we're kind of f- fueling this instability in certain um, certain regions, um, and that's causing uh, all these folks that are just like that need to that just make that heart heart wrenching decision to leave their communities in search for a better life in America. Um, because in a way, our gun culture and accessibility to guns is fueling the instability in their countries.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So connections between those two things
0: yeah definitely i think like um there's a lot of other issues that can be commingled right like mental health poverty anger problems like alcohol like all of these are just society like social issues that contribute to more gun violence and if we had less of these things of course we would have less violence but I think when there is accessibility to guns, that inherently changes the dynamic of interactions and it takes what could have been just a bad interaction to becoming a deadly interaction um, because of the availability of guns.
1: No, right. And there's there's argument about like the good guy with the gun. And you have that rare example in Indiana where there was a, a, potent, it was a mass shooting and then somebody had the uh, had the bravery um, to kind of shoot back a civilian who had no military or, or police training and was able to take down that shooter, um, and that's that's an incredible example of kind of like this this idea of a good guy with a gun. Um, unfortunately, though, it's it's incredibly rare right. for those incidents to happen, which is why this guy is, is a hero, um, and he should be uh, lauded for his bravery. But in terms of in terms of the argument of saying like the more guns that there is, like is, that'll help somehow restrict mass shooting. Like the data is very limited um, because for, for most of the time, uh, when there is like a good guy with a gun, there's a lot of confusion on who the bad guy is when the police arrive. And so there's been um, a good number of cases where there would be the good guy start trying to stop the bad guy and the police arrive and they shoot and kill the person who is supposed to, who is trying to help. Um, and so it just adds a lot of confusion and it's, to my point of view, it's not a, it's not a strategy that is, uh, by the data.
0: Mm-hmm. Tell us about how like other countries have been able to solve their mass shooting problems in the past.
1: Yeah. So what's, what's interesting is that, uh, so Britain and Australia and a bunch of other countries have these, had really strong, has, has a really strong kind of like frontier, uh, gun culture, similar to America. Right. And I feel like a lot of us, a lot of Americans feel that, you know, we have the strong, the strong gun culture and like, you can't, you can't take away our guns, um, because of the second amendment, which I'll get into. Um, but in, in Britain and Australia, they also had this, this reverence, um, for the gun and this idea of having to protect yourself, uh, from the elements, especially in Australia, when there's far greater chances of encountering some sort of animal that might do you some harm, right? But they had this one mass shooting at Port Arthur in the 1990s that killed a dozen or so folks. And the prime minister really kind of pushed for them to kind of reconsider what they should do about guns. And they, they banned certain guns. They had this buyback program and there was a lot of resistance, uh, so there was this one there was one state that was like very, very conservative. Didn't want to give up the guns. There was a lot of resistance to what they were trying to do. Um, but the but the leader in, in that who was a very strong conservative, like, was like, "Hey, this is a public health issue," um, and got. I don't think kind of he like, spent his own political capital and didn't win re-election because of it. But he kind of was instrumental in helping to push for this effort to uh, to regulate guns uh, a lot more to make sure that there is an access there is as many readily uh, accessible guns that's available to to folks and since then there has been no mass shootings in australia
0: mm-hmm.
1: so it's, a, it's a, it was a very simple prescription um and like how do you solve mass shooting you you do what what australia did
0: mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think um i guess in my mind i have a really hard time reconciling that that is a possibility for the U.S. I mean, mm-hmm. part of it is that just gun ownership and rights around gun ownership. It feels like it's there are fundamental. It, it, it it's like such a fundamental irreconcilable difference um, in how people view it that it, it feels to me like it's really hard to close the gap on, and you know that's that's why it's such a polarizing topic amongst many other other topics. And so I think, like you know, when people like Beto O'Rourke come out and say things like "We're going to take away your AR-15s and AK-47s," like it feels to me like that kind of rhetoric ends up just creating more mistrust between the two parties. And and on a side note, I think when he said that, it was right after this mass shooting in his hometown of. Um, somewhere in texas and he's come out after and said his plans are to you know defend the second amendment and just getting more measures in place to protect people but anyways i I guess the point is it feels like having gun discussions between the two parties on how we can make it more safe for both gun owner owners and people who don't own guns themselves but are around other people who do own guns it feels to me like that's a more productive path toward a solution than trying to um, fight for either extreme, in my opinion, given just, you know, the gun, the culture around gun and, you know, the Second Amendment and, and our Constitution and things like that. But do you see the U.S. being ever effective at being able to implement um, like a total ban, something like what Australia was able to implement and get enough buy-in from people in our country?
1: Yes, yeah, so that's so that's interesting, right? Cuz like the big difference I think between Australia and Britain and all these other folks that are able to kind of solve their their gun problem um by by increase public awareness and having these buyback programs and restricting certain sales of guns is that we have the second amendment, mm-hmm. right? And what's like one of these one of these pivotal kind of Supreme Court cases was Columbia versus Heller, right? That uh, affirmed the uh the right of uh, of a citizen to own, the, own a gun. Um, and, but what's, what's interesting about that is when you read like Scalia's, um, uh, writings on the subject, like he leaves open the idea that, that guns could be uh, a severe public, uh, health issue or public safety issue and says that like, yes, background checks are still constitutional. Um, bans on certain, uh, types of guns are, are constitutional. Uh, there's, uh, red flag laws where, um, you know, you try to restrict people who are mentally ill or, or potentially violent, um, that's also protected. So even though there, there is a second amendment, even the most you know, pivotal case on this subject still leaves open the idea for government to step in and, uh, and treat guns as a public safety issue and, and hit that balance between, you know, gun rights and gun ownership and the ability to defend yourself in your home and, uh, making sure that you, you protect the public. And so the, the issue really isn't, I, I think it's not, it's not a legal issue because, yeah, I mean, the writing is there. Um, the court cases have been decided opening uh, an opportunity for, for politicians to come in and um, make laws to protect all of us. The, uh, the issue is, is more political. Um, and that's where it comes. That's where that Steve Kerr video really, uh, I think, comes into play. Um, and that's why I kind of made that, made that video to just kind of add that more commentary to it. And what Steve Kerr was saying was that there's a lot of common sense, very popular gun re- regulations that are out there. One example is, is, is background checks, increased enhanced background checks. I think 90% of the American public like agree with that. But, but the problem isn't the fact that the, that the voters, uh, agree with these solutions. The problem comes with the way we vote and, um. And that's what I kind of got into in that video.
0: And we're going to share that exact three-minute clip and commentary that Sean had shared.
1: I wanted to provide some commentary on that Steve Kerr video, especially when he said, Do you realize that 90% of Americans, regardless of political party, want background check, universal background check? 90% of us, we are being held hostage by 50 senators in Washington who refuse to even put it to a vote despite... What we the American people want, they won't vote on it because they want to hold on to their own power. I think what might not be clear is, why would they lose power if they vote on something that 90 percent of Americans want? problem is with the primary election. So this is where Republicans vote on a ballot of Republicans and Democrats do the same to see which one will face off in the general election. The issue is that, historically, There has been a terribly low turnout in the primaries. But you know who does reliably show up for this election? Pro-gun people. And so if a Republican votes on any piece of gun reform legislation, they know that more often than not, they will be facing a challenger in the primaries. And if the NRA and these other pro-gun rights groups backs the challenger, then that Republican will be in for a very tough re-election campaign. And that's what makes the NRA so influential. It's not necessarily the money that they donate. It's the fact that they have a very, very engaged member base that they can drive to the voting booth. And that's what Steve Kerr meant. These politicians are refusing to act because they don't want to be challenged in the primaries. They'd rather hold on to power. And so in a sense, we have a system where our politicians are incentivized to be more responsive to what extremists want than what the American majority wants, which seems very undemocratic. If we want to fix the gun problem, we need to fix that quirk in the way we vote. We need to reward our politicians for doing the right thing. And to do that, we need to push our state reps to follow in the footsteps of Alaska, who in 2020 enacted legislation for open primaries and ranked choice voting in the general election. So what that means is that in the primaries, instead of getting a Republican ballot and a Democrat ballot, you're just given one ballot with all the candidates on it. And then you vote for who you want, and the top four vote-getters moves on to the general election, regardless of party affiliation. And now with open primaries, a Republican who votes on gun reform legislation has decent confidence that they can at least make it to the general election. And with ranked choice voting, you have to appeal to a large majority of people to win. So these one issue extremist candidates will have a much harder time getting traction. And so in this way, we create a system where we align the self-interests of politicians with the interests of the people. And if we want sustainable gun reform legislation, this needs to be part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Oh, no, no, go ahead.
1: Yeah, so, so one of the reasons why I kind of started the Ranked the Rank to Vote Illinois Instagram page was because I'm a big proponent on, like like when, when, when it, these big issues come in and it seems like things are intractable, right? Where you have, Liberals saying one thing, conservatives saying another thing, and there's all all there is is gridlock um, and just kicking the can down the road and trying to uh, not have any sensible legislation being passed forth. Like the central dysfunction is this idea that um, is it's this, this structural advantage that the way we vote is given toward more extremists than it is towards the broader majority. Uh, and one example of that is this idea of, of partisan primary elections, right? So if a politician, like one example is in New York after the Buffalo shooting, there was one Republican congressman uh, for the state that was like, hey, we need to ban AR-15, these high-powered semi medic rifles, right? A Republican said that, right? And he got so much backlash from the NRA and a lot of people from his own party that he decided not to even run for re-election, right? And so it's, it, it, the And the issue is that he knew that once he runs for the primary election, that he's going to be challenged by somebody who is backed by the NRA, who is very more dogmatic in, in making sure that, you know, there's no infringement on gun ownership. Um, and you most likely would lose that election. And the problem with, part, with primary elections is that the people who vote in primaries, it's a very low turnout, but the people who vote in it are, are folks that are more hyper-partisan um, and are more extremists. And so to get past that first layer of getting elected, you, you have to cater almost to folks that are that are more partisan. And, and these gun enthusiasts are the ones that vote. Even though the broader public might agree with you, to get past that first level before you get to general election, you have to go through people who are more extreme when they vote. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, okay, so yeah. just kind of a level set for everyone. Um So the purpose of the primary election is essentially to narrow the field of candidates within a a political party Uh so that voters are selecting a single candidate in the general elections. Like the primaries really set the stage for the general elections. So in this video from Steve Kerr, he, he talked about how majority of Americans want more gun control laws in place, but that there are 50 senators who won't put it to a vote because they want to hold on to power. Um, mm-hmm. And you, you talked about in the video like why they would lose power if they vote on something that most Americans want. And so what you're saying it that goes back to the way our primary elections are held,
1: right? Absolutely. And another example is there was one Republican from Colorado that mm-hmm. was pushing for red flag laws, right? And so this is a law that says if somebody feels that someone who owns a gun could be violent or is mentally unstable or somewhat unfit to, to have that responsibility of gun ownership, mm-hmm. they could you know, contact law enforcement. And there's some sort of due process to be able to be like, yes, this person is unfit and then to temporarily remove their guns. Um, and so he proposed this after a mass shooting in Colorado. And he got so much backlash uh, from, from his own political party that that like one, two, I think two things happened, right? Like it's... The fact that he's vulnerable now, so another politician can be like, oh, this person, um, already blacklisted from the NRA, let me, let me run against him, uh, and say that I'm going to protect your, your guns. Uh, and then all of a sudden, all those hyper-partisans are going to vote for him instead of the, the more moderate candidate. And then all of a sudden, you know, he doesn't get it, He does not have a shot at moving up to the general election. So by trying to moderate your position, you have to go through the extremists first before you get to the general election. And then the second thing that happens too is if for some reason you're able to get to the primaries, the people who are enthusiastic to vote for you, um, if, if you kind of make them less enthusiastic to vote because they disagree with you know your proposal, then they might not come out in the numbers that you want and you, and you lose to someone from another political party. Mm-hmm.
0: So what we're seeing is that it's more of the like super hyper partisan people with the extreme views that are showing up in the primary elections.
1: Right. Right. And so and that that, that things. Um Yeah. And it's interesting because uh, primary elections are a relatively new concept, only in the last like 50 or 60 years. Before it used to be um uh, I guess it was more problematic because it would just be party insiders that would choose who the representatives of that party is. And then they were like this, you know, this doesn't seem legitimate. Uh let it let it be a direct vote. And they thought by allowing more people to vote that um, that it will have a moderating force and they'll be able to select the candidate that they, that they mostly agree with. What they didn't consider was when, when things are going well in uh, in government and people are, are generally satisfied with it, it becomes a lower priority, right? And so people are like, I'd rather like work, spend time with my family, do all these things and pay attention to politics. Um, so the folks that are actually paying attention to politics are the ones that uh, are, are afraid, are, are concerned, are more partisan, feel very strongly about some sort of issue. And they're the ones who get turned to vote, the more emotional ones, right? And so by having this idea of having a primary election, it's the folks that are more engaged in politics that vote, where the vast majority who might show up for the general election are less enthusiastic about showing up for the primary. Okay. But when things are dysfunctional, I feel like then more and more folks gets involved in politics and that's what we see right now i think after trump i think he he really inspired folks to come out and vote
0: yeah yeah i remember um i was watching a it was a good morning america segment with the mayor of uvaldi and it was the Mm -hmm. day after the school shooting and um, he's a conservative mayor and i remember the question was asked of okay you know how are we going to address this this tragedy and the interviewer was alluding to legislation gun reform gun control and he started saying how he feels like the issue is not due to guns it's mental health um which is an agreeable statement but okay then let's do something about that but okay separate from that and the point i'm trying to make is you know he did kind of say in passing i remember like how he'd be fine with expanding background checks but he kind of said it in a kind of like a very passing and unconvincing manner and then when he was Asked the question more directly after by the interviewer, he just immediately just started stuttering, like couldn't get two words out. And it just struck me as a classic example of, you know, somebody who's in power and then doesn't want to come out and say something that he knows will not be the opinion of the voter base that is supporting him and allowing him to stay in power.
1: Yeah. So they, what's what's interesting about that too is, they, so they they passed a bipartisan gun legislation, right? It's very watered down compared to what gun rights activists would have wanted. Um, but the Republicans, like a good proportion of the Republicans that voted for that legislation, were Republican senators that were on the way to to be retired, right? They're they're about to retire, and they're like, hey, you know, now that I'm not subject to another election, let me vote uh, on this piece of legislation that they feel is really important. Right, so that that was kind of revealing as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's not the first time that this this happened. That like one one interesting um, uh, I guess moment of history was so in the 1950s um, there was this there was a candidate called George Wallace who was like this the governor of Alabama that's been in power for like 24 years or something like that like a, a very strong segregationist, right? And he was really uh, pro. Segregation and he was against integration and everything. But what's interesting about it was that when he first ran uh, for governor, he was he he was backed by the end of right? And he lost to uh, to someone who was even a, m- a more extreme conservative than he was. And then when he came back and tried to run again, he became even more extreme than the other person, right? And then he wa- he, came, he came he came into power and they stayed in power for a number of years. And then fast forward decades later, right now, those folks, like both those governors are like, yeah, we were wrong about segregation and all that stuff. Um, but the way they voted and what they were saying was they were to get power um, right. because that's what they knew how they could get elected. Right. Right. Yeah. And yeah. the same thing with politicians now, like you never know if like, that's what they really believe or if it's, some, if it's something that they have to say because of the the structural system that we have in place in order for them to actually win. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Okay. So going back to the the system, I know we were previously just talking about the primaries. So can you kind of just outline for us, like the difference between the different kinds of primaries or there's like open primaries and then closed primaries. Um, but just tell us just real quick, like what the difference is between the two.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So another example of this to, to kind of emphasize why this is important. Um, especially right now. So right now, they're going through the prime, like the Republicans and Democrats are going through primaries for, for Senate and for governor, mm-hmm. um, and and what's interesting is that you see folks, who are like, for the Republican side, you see there's Trump backed um, Republicans, and you know they're more more extremist on that side and more conservative, um, and then you have more of like a moderate Republican that would run against them, and it's the folks, it's the it's the states that have a closed primary system where the Trump back candidates uh, win and the states that have a, more of an open primary or like a semi open primary are the ones where the moderate Republican wins. So, so, an example is, uh, in Pennsylvania, you have an election denier that won the, the primary for governor. Um, but in, Al- but in Georgia, uh, you have the one that was more of the moderate. Uh, that won. And so it's, so it's interesting just the way that the elections are for the primary, the primary elections are, you you already have this kind of moderating force depending on, on which one is used. And so in a closed primary system, it's only a registered Republican that can vote in that primary. Same thing with Democrats, only registered Democrats can vote uh, in that, uh, in that primary election. Mm-hmm. But most people, and there's a good chunk of people who are independents, who are, are nonpartisans, And so they're not, they're not registered in one way or or another. And so they don't have a choice of, of voting for someone who eventually is going to be, because we have a two party system was eventually going to be their representative, right? So they're eventually effectively disenfranchised in that sense. Uh, but in Georgia, they, they allow independents to be able to vote in the primary and by getting, adding their voices to it, all of a sudden you have uh, you have a candidate that I think is is more in line with, with what the majority wants than, you know, being it structured towards more of what extremists want.
0: Right. So, okay. So with open primaries, essentially that allows, open primaries allow voters the most amount of freedom when they're voting because they don't require you to disclose your political party or affiliation, correct? Like you can vote in either party's primaries.
1: Yeah. In open primaries, you can vote in that other. So the, so one example is when so 2020, Alaska implemented an open primary system and ranked choice voting for the general election. Uh, so what that means is that uh, you have one slate of all the candidates. You don't, because before you go in, you're like, all right, I'm a Democrat. Let me go in and get the Democrat slate. All right, I'm a Republican. Let me go in and just vote for the Republicans and then, you know, see who wins. And then they go into the general election. Uh, but now, whether you're a Republican or whether you're a Democrat or whether you're an Independent, you're only getting one ballot with all the candidates on it. Republicans, Democrats, Independents. And then you select who you want. And then the top five vote getters moves on to the general election. Mm-hmm. And then there's ranked choice voting to figure out who wins.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, okay, so you said closed, closed primaries require voters to register with a particular party. And then you're only allowed in that party's primary election. So if you're a registered Democrat, you can only vote for Democratic candidates and then you know, vice versa. So if you have a state that has, let's say 5 million people who identify as independent and don't want to register or affiliate with a particular party. And if that's a closed primary state, you can reasonably expect that that's essentially 5 million people who won't vote in the primaries. Right, and so that entire group of people and all those voices become exempt from that voting process. Like if that's an accurate way to interpret the consequences of a closed primary.
1: Yeah, and that and that's one of the one of the issues with it is that you're disenfranchising voters that don't subscribe to either parties. Mm -hmm. They don't have a a voice in um, in nominating someone who eventually is going to be their representative because a third party candidate most likely in our day and age right now um, and the way our voting structure is has a very difficult time to win.
0: Yeah, I know you mentioned Alaska and Alaska is a deeply red state and yeah. their Senator Lisa Murkowski, she's a Republican and she's kind of noted more as one of the more like moderate Republicans. And so her vote is often considered a swing vote and she's up for reelection this year. And she was one of the few Republican senators who voted to impeach Donald Trump in, in 2021. She's, you know, had a lot of backlash from her own party as a result. But the fact that Alaska is now an open primary state means that like she actually has she has an, she has a chance at re election reelection. And I don't know if she would have taken that same stance on the country. news or been, you know, vocal about it had Alaska still been a, a closed primary state.
1: Yeah, that's, I, I agree too. I don't think it's a coincidence that one of the few Republicans that voted to impeach Trump the second time around, uh, was, was Lisa Murkowski from a state that just enacted open primaries and ranked choice voting. Mm-hmm. Cause if, cause otherwise her political calculus is, well, if I vote for Trump's impeachment, then some, some other hyper-partisan Republican is gonna, is gonna challenge me in the primaries. And I might not even get through the primaries to get to general election, even though most people will probably vote for me in the general election, Mm -hmm. right? And so that that is part of her political calculus, and she might not, you know, vote the way she wanted to, but by having open primaries, she at least has reasonable confidence that she'll be in the top five vote getters, and then she could beat the extremists in the general election. Yeah. With Frank mm Kurtzman.
0: Let's pivot a little and talk about the political parties in the U.S.? Like, why is it that we have a two-party system and how this all came to be? Because it wasn't always the case, I think. So give us a little background and history on how we've gotten to where we are today with this two-party system.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I think, you know, for our lifetimes, we, you know, we have a two-party system, right? It's Republicans or Democrats that usually win either a local, a state, or a federal election. But what's interesting is that even though there was a two party system in the 1950s, let's say the composition of the people who are in those parties is vastly different than what we're experiencing right now. Right. And so when people are like, oh yeah, in the 1960s, they voted to, or they, there was a strong consensus on them potentially voting to impeach Richard Nixon. And that's like, uh, not fathomable, you know, in, in this day and age, but it's, but it's not the same. Um so one example one of the issues in the 1950s was actually that the Republicans and Democrats were too similar you know like there there was no much difference there wasn't much difference between their their platforms it was very murky you voted for the candidate per se and not for the party because the party didn't really stand for for much there wasn't like this national message of what they stood for and what was interesting about it was that there were in essence four political parties that were wrapped up in these two parties and so you had conservative Democrats, conservative Republicans, liberal Democrats and liberal Republicans. Right. So it was four political parties, uh, underneath those two, two parties. And the big moment I think happened in 1960. And so, JFK, who was a Democrat was running against Richard Nixon, who was a Republican and MLK got thrown into jail on some traffic charge. And this happened like two weeks before the election. And so um there was a big question uh, on each of the candidates on whether or not they're going to call his wife to kind of express their their assurances that they'll do everything that they can to kind of help Al McKay Jr. And so JFK decided to make that call right and he talked to Coretta Scott King and kind of pledged that you know will he'll be with her and and help her and help Al McKay and kind of get out of this this situation and Nixon decided not to make that call, right? And then what happened in the 1960s is uh, JFK won, but he won overwhelmingly the black vote. And the Democrats became the party of, of civil rights, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so then in 1964, they passed, so that uh, who was a conservative Democrat from Texas, helped to pass the civil rights legislation and then the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Right. And so when Nixon came into power, he realized that, oh, and what's interesting too, is that when the civil rights legislation passed, there was more, even though LBJ was a Democrat, there were more Republicans that voted for it than Democrats, which is like unheard of right now. So it was, it was, it was a bipartisan bill, but it was all the liberal Democrats voted for it and all the liberal Republicans voted for it. Right. And so, um. So that, so, that's unheard of uh, in in today's day.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you see um, a realistic way that a different party can gain enough traction and become become relevant? I mean, because we've had these like third parties show up occasionally, and I think there's been a few ongoing efforts to form a new new third party, like by Andrew Yang and, and I'm sure others, but for the most part, you know, we kind of don't really see them as having like a real chance at winning the presidency. So, do you see like any kind of future, near term, or not near term necessarily, but the the foreseeable future, where um, it could be like a real thing that a different party gains enough movement and traction?
1: It's interesting. I, I don't think it's possible now uh, because because we have something called the the first past the post system. Right. And the, it's kind of like a carryover from, from Britain, actually. So all like the Commonwealth countries, like New Zealand, Britain, the U S adopted this first pass vote system. And what it means is that the candidate who has the most votes wins. And it's like, oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. That's what a democracy should be. Right. The candidate who has the most votes wins. The problem though, is that if you had two candidates, that makes sense. The candidate who has the most votes will get the majority of, of the votes and they would win. Right. But let's say there are, let's say there are three candidates, right? And they, there's hundred voters and 33 vote for one uh, candidate, 32 votes for the second candidate, and then 34 votes for the third candidate, right? And so the 34 vote person wins the election because they won, they got the most votes. But in reality, like two thirds of the voters may have like not wanted that person at all. Right. Right. And like, that was like the extremist kind of like this horrific candidate. And because they split that vote, this extremist won the election. And so that's why it's so hard for a third party to win because they, they just, they're just a spoiler candidate. Mm -hmm. Right. And so everyone's just like, why are you running? You're just going to split the vote of the, of the party that we need to have a strong coalition coalition from in order to beat this other party that we absolutely think is going to be terrible. Right. Right. And so that creates this two party system because all of a sudden you don't want similar parties that might be a little bit different to run because they're going to split the vote
0: mm-hmm. right because i mean let's say voters as an example if voters favor a uh, specific set of political ideals and values and they have a choice between two candidates who both support those principles it's likely that both of them will actually lose because their collective voter base will now split their votes right because yeah. if you get like one candidate who gets 40 percent and then the two candidates who share similar political positions gets 35 and 25 like that other 40 percent person will take all the votes and win so that I mean that system basically makes it such that it's in each party's favor to avoid third party candidates
1: yeah and the voters too don't want it mm-hmm. right because they now now the, the calculus that we're running is that uh, you know I might not like that political party but I, I'm more afraid of this other political party right. so I'd rather for this, Then for another party that I actually agree with, but I don't want to waste my vote on that. So that's uh, why I started this Frank the Vote Illinois page is because I wanted to raise awareness on the benefits of ranked choice voting uh, because it starts to get into the heart of the dysfunction that we have in our government uh, right now because it'll allow third party voices to no longer be a spoiler candidate. They could actually have a voice and potentially, potentially win an election with ranked choice voting compared to the the first past the post system. Uh, an example of that is in Maine; uh, they're the first state to uh, enact ranked choice voting, right? And the reason why they did that is because they had a governor uh, that they elected uh, with thirty, like six percent of the vote. Uh, who is this divider extremist kind of embarrassment? He calls himself the Trump before Trump. Right. And the good people of Maine were like, how in the world did this guy become a, our our governor? And so they had this moment where they came together and was like, how do we prevent this from ever happening again? Like we need a candidate. We need a representative that actually is ref- a reflection of our, our values and the majority of, of our voters. Um, and so that kind of inspired them to uh, push for this idea of ranked choice voting. And so just to talk a little bit about that, the uh, instead of going into a voting booth and having just one person to vote for, you go in and you are able to rank your candidates. So you're like, all right, candidate B, I want to rank first. Candidate A is second and candidate C is third, right? And then what happens is that, you know, if let's say you're, you really didn't want that extremist to win, then you rank them last. So in that example where we had two candidates and then the third one, they got 34 votes. Well, the first like a voter uh, of, of candidate A could say, well, I want candidate B to be my second vote and then candidate three. And then can, and then for the voters for candidate B can list candidate A to be the second vote. Mm-hmm. And so that way, if they don't win um, that round, it'll go to the candidate they prefer next. And it kind of dilutes the impact of candidate three that nobody wants.
0: Right. I mean, so... That all seems very sensible, especially because it helps alleviate that wasted vote problem, and nobody gets mad at you because you put your vote toward a third party. And this just allows people to, like, vote for the candidate that they want to vote for. And I guess a couple things come to mind in terms of the actual execution of it. Like, I guess the first is just the actual administration of it. I mean, I, I would think by 2022 we have machines and computers in place to. Count ballots, But I also wouldn't put it past our government to still have some archaic systems and processes still in place. But, you know, how would these votes be counted? And like, from a resource standpoint, are there going to be more resources required in terms of either um, money or people resources? Like, how would that work from a standpoint of just actual administration and execution of it?
1: Yeah, there's going to be a need for additional funding in order to kind of revamp the way that we vote right now, especially like creating new ballots and then having a system in which there's multiple rounds so that, um, you know, when they do the first round, they look at who got the least amount of votes and then they kick them out. And then all the people who voted for that person, their their second votes gets recalculated, right? And they keep going through those rounds until one can actually get a majority number of votes, right? And that person wins. Um, so yeah, there's there going to be some hiccups in the beginning potentially. Um, New York had this most recently where they changed to a ranked choice voting system to vote for their mayor, and there was all sorts of um, issues with kind of transitioning from the previous way to the ranked choice voting way. Um, but they, able they were able to figure it out. So, um, and they're going to continue it and by and large, even the candidates that, that lost, have said that ranked choice voting is their preferred method of, of, uh, of going forward with this. So, um, so yeah, there's going to be some, uh, there's going to be some sort of implementation costs, Mm -hmm. but by and large, in terms of making our voting system, a better reflection of the voters, this is a huge policy prescription to kind of push for.
0: Yeah. Um, So what would the opposition to ranked choice voting be? Like, are there any reasons why people, specifically lawmakers, would be opposed to implementing this? Because, I mean, this isn't, um, it's important to point out that, like, it's not party specific. It's not going to, like, bias toward any one party. It's the whole system as a whole. Mm -hmm. So why would there be any kind of opposition to it?
1: Yeah. When Maine tried to implement bank choice voting, when when the voters and the activists kind of got together and was like, we need to, you know, just add this little difference in the way we vote. Um, there was a strong backlash to it. I mean, the governor at the time vetoed it because the system, the current system kind of benefited him, right? Like he just needed 37% of the people to vote for him. Like, you know, it's, it's going to be much harder for him to win if he actually needed a majority. Mm-hmm. And so he vetoed it. Um, and so there is kind of like this entrenched, um, I mean, the people who were the current system, uh, where they benefit from the current system is going to kind of push back against this. Right. But luckily with Maine, they had what's called the people's vote in their constitution that allows them to have a referendum that can overturn a governor's veto. And they came out in droves and overturned the governor's veto in order to establish ranked choice voting. Mm -hmm. Right. And my hypothesis is that after, kind of after Trump, I think there's a lot of folks who are kind of looking internally to be like, what is so dysfunctional about the way we vote um, that that the folks that we're not happy with are elected leaders?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we need to find a leader that we can all kind of, at least the majority of folks say like, yes, this is a good compromise candidate that we think we can follow. Another example of, of resistance ranked choice voting app heaven in New Zealand where, uh, it, they also had a first pass the post system. And they're also very, for, from the 1970s, 1980s, they were very dissatisfied with their government. They had very little trust. I think there was like one poll that said like 4% of people had trust in their, in their government. Right. So an all time low and that, and in a democracy, if you don't have trust in your democratic institutions, that's a, a cause for alarm and, um, and so they, they wanted to change how they voted to be a reflection of the system. And, and there were they had this thing where even though the number of people, like the, the party that got the most governing majority, um, got the the lesser number of votes, right? So there's some sort of structural difference, kind of in a way, kind of like Trump with, you know, he, he lost a popular vote, but then he won the election. But it also happens with the House of Representatives in certain districts where it's not the majority preferred candidate, it's just the ones that got the most votes, right? And so they're very dissatisfied and they had these weird quirks in their system. They're like, we need to change the system. And so they push for ranked choice voting. um, And usually the party that's out of power is pushing for it. But then once the party gets into power, all of a sudden it's like, oh, oh, the system now benefits me. Right. So I don't want to reform this. Um, But luckily in in 1992, the people in New Zealand really pushed for this policy change. Um, And now they have a system in which they're very happy with the government. Mm-hmm. You know, and the model they used was actually based off of Germany, which has this uh, mixed member proportional system. Um, and I can talk about that later, but that's another kind of way we can kind of tweak the way we elect our candidates to be a better reflection of the way we vote and limit the number of people who are disenfranchised from the system.
0: Right. How many, do you know how many states in the U.S. have now implemented uh, ranked choice voting?
1: So the, the two big ones statewide is Maine and Alaska, like two Republican strongholds. Um, Massachusetts lost the referendum. There's a bunch of other states that are kind of pushing for this, but a whole bunch of cities and townships are, are starting to implement ranked choice voting. So it's, it's something that's starting to, to gather steam and awareness on a local level. And so it's just a matter of kind of percolating up to the top.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I think I think the most recent Chicago Evanston is pushing for ranked choice voting, so they might move in that direction. I mean, New York uh, changed it that way. Uh, Memphis implemented ranked choice voting, but then the uh, the legislators in Tennessee came out with a ban on ranked choice voting, and so there is some up- uphill battle mm-hmm. on that sense. So,
0: do you think um, do you think ranked choice voting could overwhelm people because now it's like the gamut of options is even more and does it make it more you know quote complicated and will it possibly overwhelm people i mean i would imagine that if you are a well-educated person and regularly engaged with politics this might be great but for someone who maybe just wants to vote for a single person and move on, like this may create more burden for them. So, how do you think about that being addressed?
1: So, so, so it's interesting, right? So, America was like democracy 101, right? Um, but other countries have since looked at America and tried out slightly different methods uh, and found ways to limit the this voter disenfranchisement to kind of build up to find, to find a way to get more compromised candidate, more candidates to have a, a mandate on the majority, uh, to get into power. Right. And so with wing choice voting, like Ireland has been doing it for a hundred years, right? Australia has been doing it for, for a hundred years. I mean, it's been around for a very long time. It's just something that folks are just not aware of in America. Um, and, but what's interesting is that because it reduces the spoiler effect, mm-hmm. it allows more political parties to actually have an opportunity to um to win an election, right? And what happens is that instead of being instead of the Republicans saying, like, "Oh, vote for us because these Democrats are crazy. Look at these these extremists. They want to do x y. And then the uh, Democrats do the same thing. They pick out the most extreme Republican policies. and they say, "See, all Republicans are like this. Vote for us. um so we can we can stop them, right? And then it becomes this polarizing effect. It's constantly, Uh, Every single election is this existential crisis on where we're going to go as a nation, right? Whereas Mm -hmm. if we had ranked choice voting, then they actually have to stand for something, you know, because there's going to be another, there's going to be two other parties, potentially that they have to differentiate themselves from. And And so to make the argument that like, all these parties are terrible, vote for me, it becomes very difficult. So then they have to be for something. And so each party that arises from the system would say like, we are the party of this. Like vote for us because of X, Y, Z, and they kind of create coalitions because if you don't, and if you don't want want to vote for us, well, vote for this other party, you know? And so it it starts to become this coalition building consensus. And if you're a voter, you can finally find a party that is more in line with your views that you want to vote for, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just voting for the lesser of two evils. So it clarifies party messages. And I think that will kind of get, get around this whole idea of like, it's just going to be anarchy. Um, because it's clearly not the case in Ireland and Australia that have implemented this mm-hmm. and using mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, when you when you mentioned like lesser of two evils, I mean it just feels like politics today is just so polarizing. Like there was an interesting um paper done by some economists that showed that the animosity that people feel toward opposing parties relative to their own has considerably grown in the US in the last four decades. And um, that effective polarization in the U.S. is the greatest compared to other uh, developed countries over that that same time period. And I think like with the rise of Twitter and social media like that just contributes to I would imagine that contributes even more to that deep divide, because that just creates, you know, social media just kind of creates these like echo chambers almost that just boldens your existing beliefs and cushions you from anything that's beyond that or beside that.
1: No, absolutely. I think it, and the the fact that we have a system that promotes a two-party system makes it very easy to just have uh, a policy where we're not the other guys, mm-hmm. right? Let's just fear monger. Let's just cast the other people as being extremists and crazy and whatever the, what the case is, which is not doing uh, any sort of help with our anxiety levels and mental health, right. When we think that every election is, is in this, you know, this crisis for the future. Um, but yeah, like what's, what's also interesting, what came up with social media and all these digital avenues and is that there's, there's folks that are profiting from, from fear mongering and, and hitting these very, uh, emotional, uh, wedge issues that. They can then, you know, get viewers and get ad dollars and all that stuff, right? So like Fox news, for example, uh, is an example of this where, um, they cater, they know their audience, right? So they, they cater towards conservatives, um, and they hit on more of these emotional stories, um, because they know that's what, that's what their, their audience wants. That's what gets the eyeballs and becomes a business decision where they're like, how do we get more eyeballs to watch us? Well talking about voting reform is, going can be interesting, right? So. Uh, let's talk about something that's actually like emotional, that that, uh, that hits the history, that the hardcore, the uh, you know that, that hits someone on a personal level, um, and then ratchet that up, you know, and then by getting more eyeballs, you're able to get more ad dollars, mm-hmm. right? And so all of a sudden, there's a business model around political polarization, and that's that's um, that just kind of feeds into the frenzy of mm-hmm. of all of this.
0: So basically, you know. The two-party system that we have, um, like the inherent issues that it can create is that lawmakers can now push for or promote policies that perhaps aren't actually representative of majority of of the population. Um, And so how we can go about addressing that is through ranked choice voting and and open primaries. And that's why you're uh, so engaged with this. So what are some tangible steps that people can take to like push for this and get some more momentum behind it.
1: Right. I think it's it's interesting because I think we're at a point where we realize that our politics uh, is dysfunctional, right? Mm-hmm. We have these pressing issues before us, like gun, gun regulation or climate change or like immigration, all these like big things that are just not being solved in any sort of meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Um, but... And and what it comes down to, I think, is, is folks are realizing is that we have this, this entrenched political gridlock. Um, and so one thing that I'm trying to do and I'm uh, trying to connect with others who are like this is to say, it's to kind of raise awareness, even though like voting reform is not that, you know, that engaging in a sense, but it's just like, hey, the reason why everything is so dysfunctional comes down to the the structure of the way we vote. Um, so I think one key thing is just awareness that this reality that we're living in of constant political polarization is not something that we need to tolerate if we're able to change, um, these key things.
0: Um,
1: So that's the, the first thing is just, just, uh, just awareness. And then two is there's folks like fair vote and, uh, these rank the vote initiatives, um, that are pushing for, uh, voting reform. That, um, that can do this fundamental change to help us have a more healthy democracy. And to get plugged into those and to push our congressmen um, to have this front and center on their plates is, is critical. Um,
0: and as far as getting it implemented, like is this something that would need to be like put on a ballot to be voted for?
1: Yeah. So it depends on the state, right? So there's, there's some states that you're able to put onto referendum if you get, if you get enough signatures. Um, so that's how Alaska did it, right? They got enough signatures, uh, Maine did the same thing. Um, there's some states that don't have that opportunity. And so you have to work with your actual congressman, uh, to kind of push for legislation to get this done. Um, and it's, it's an, uh, but the more people who, who know about it, the more people who push for this to say hey you know yes i want to solve all these other bigger issues but i know that those aren't going to be solved because of the the uh, the voting structure that we have right now so let's fix this first and that way we can elect the people we can reward politicians for finding actual solutions as opposed to just rewarding uh, extremists um in in those positions right and so for for them for the public to kind of push our politicians to have these fundamental voting reforms be front and center. Um, we can we can try to get that passed.
0: Yeah. So I know you mentioned Fair Vote as an organization. Are there any others that you want to uh, specifically call out?
1: Yeah. There is. There's Fair Vote. Um, there is a bunch, but I want I to do justice on what they're called because, like, what they what they called on Instagram is different from what their actual name is. But I'll uh, I'll send to you later.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to. Link that in the show notes so that people can have that as reference. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, awesome. Well, this was super interesting. It was very informative. I know I learned a lot. I hope the listeners will as well. Um, and to be honest, I had never even heard of ranked choice voting before I saw you start to talk about it through your platform. So for sure, just you know, talking about it and, and spreading awareness is key. Uh, I'm curious, have you considered running for politics?
1: No, no. I have not. I'm just doing my part in civic, to be civically engaged, um, yeah. you know, especially after, uh, you know, after your year, year of of more political partisanship and uh, dysfunction and gridlock. It's just like, okay, what can I do to to kind of move things along? Um, but yeah, so, I mean, I have this, I, I think I've accepted the fact that I'm a failed influencer with my, you know, Instagram account with a hundred followers, but, um, you know, I'm just doing it to... To just play a part in the whole thing,
0: yeah. And um, if people want to connect with you, or if they want to talk to you more about ranked choice voting and open primaries, how can they connect with you?
1: Yeah, they can reach out to me on rank the vote IL on on Instagram. And yeah, I would love to get Republicans, Democrats, Independents, um, whatever whatever your your political stripe is, because I think it's I think this is a common sense reform. To, to implement. So yeah, I'd love to connect with anyone else who's interested in, in pushing this forward.
0: Cool. Yeah. I'll be sure to, uh, again, link that in the show notes. Um, so again, thank you so much. Uh, let's see if we have time. I think we've got time. So, um, I thought it'd be nice to kind of end the show on a little bit of a lighter note. Sometimes I like to do okay. these lightning rounds with guests just as a way to get them, get to know them a little bit more on a personal level. Um, um so if you're up for it I'd love to ask you some questions and or give you some options and you just answer them. It's 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 easy.
1: Okay, I'm ready.
0: Did you have a nickname that your parents or family called you growing up?
1: Uh my my sister would call me Shmo and the other variations of Sean. The Indian version of Sean is like Sean. <laughs> that uh, was uh, was used a lot.
0: How many states and or countries have you lived in?
1: i lived in london new york new jersey um and illinois
0: so when you you did your graduate program at london school of economics so i'm guessing that's when you lived there um how did you like living in london and how long were you there for
1: i was there for years so it was a one-year master's program i enjoyed it i think it was the most international experience i've ever gotten um and I really felt as um, like I really felt like like, like I was a minority uh, just being like an American because um, everyone else came from another country, and so it was just fascinating to hear um, other people's perspective on like American politics and like the issues that they're running into in their own countries. Um, and so it was just a fascinating experience to kind of connect with folks from a very different upbringing than me um, and hearing about their life story. So it was. It was a, yeah, it was a great, great experience.
0: Um, are you a morning person or a night owl?
1: I'm a morning person. I cannot for the life of me, uh, sleep in past 8am anymore. Even if I go to bed at 3am, I just, I'm just a waking zombie yeah. for the rest of the day. Yeah.
0: What is your favorite fast food?
1: Oh, probably Taco Bell. Okay. That's I mean, my go-to. Yeah.
0: I think Taco Bell has done a lot to improve the quality of their food and their meats. I mean, I remember in college, like Taco Bell had a reputation for their meat being equated to to like dog food. But
1: yeah, it come a yeah lot- but it's so tasty. <laughs> <laughs> that and Chipotle. I think I interchanged between in those two pretty often.
0: Yeah. Um... Awesome. Well, thank you again, Sean, for coming on and um, you know, sharing your area of expertise and educating all of us on ranked choice voting and how it can be beneficial for our country. Again, I know I learned a lot and I hope our listeners will as well.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um I'm so glad to be part of the Barn Girl Podcast as he's the first <laughs>
0: <room>. <laughs> second male to be on the show. So
1: Nice, nice. I'm glad I'm glad we're helping to break boundaries here. But um no, I really appreciate you you inviting me on and, and sharing, even though I only met fifty percent of the qualifications to be on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All good. Thank you, Cheyenne. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also connect with us on Instagram at the thebrowngirl underscore podcast and all other social media platforms listed in the show notes. Thank you again. I appreciate you being here.